Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. All right, boys. Welcome back to Drop Pass Podcast. I am back again, and the main reason for last week's absence was the fact that I finally graduated and had few things to shard out before the end of the week, so I didn't really have time for much else than that, but now I have some, and I want to dedicate it first and foremost for some Stanley Cup Finals talk, and second of all, for some coaching and GM speculation, since we heard the few new and older names arriving to the block last week, and therefore... I think it is necessary to shed some light to those aspects as well. So fairly chill episode incoming and if you happen to be new around here, I welcome you to this experience and hope that you will remain as a member for longer than just this episode. Thank you for your support and as I alluded in last week's episode, it's been two years since the first official episode so I'm working on something special for the occasion so hopefully it will come to fruition and I can arrange something a little bit different for a future episode but you'll have to wait and see what it's all about. That is going to be the foreword for this week's show. Remember to drop a follow on IG at the drop underscore pass and to rate the podcast on Spotify because it helps to grow the show tremendously and it only takes like a couple of seconds for you to press the five star icon. And if you've done that already, I thank you for your support and wish that you enjoy rest of the show. With that said, we are pretty much ready for this week's run, so sit back, relax and enjoy the following 50 plus minutes of NHL talk. Without further ado, let's get go. And here we go. You know what, buddy? The NHL playoffs are soon going to be over, which means the end for the NHL season. And honestly, I don't know what to think of it since I've been so invested in the playoffs this year. I've missed maybe one or two games in total, and my every morning has started with full NHL games, so... Even the small break in between the conference finals and the finals was a major change for me, so it's most likely going to be a major shock once the playoffs are completely in the books, and I might have to find something else to fill that void with, and I don't know exactly what that would be. And I'm really thankful for the opportunity to watch so much hockey, because like I said, I've been pretty much inhaling NHL action for the past one and a half months, and the action hasn't disappointed one bit, so... If I was already invested in last year's postseason, this year has totally trucked it. And I can say with confidence that hockey doesn't get much better than what we've seen so far. But we still have the Stanley Cup Finals left to play, and the first game is already in the books, but regardless of the score, today we are going to dive into this matchup and look how each team made its way to the top of the NHL totem pole. But before that though, as I mentioned, we have few big headlines to cover, and on the spotlight today, are going to be the Toronto Maple Leafs, Washington Capitals, Nashville Predators, and last but certainly not least, the Pittsburgh Penguins. So, as always, we are going to start with the most recent topics and move on to the cup speculation later on. So, first, let's dive into coaching front, where the hot names on the block last week were Andrew Brunette and Spencer Carberry. So Nashville, as I've mentioned, is in the middle of a major turnover front office-wise, and last week we learned that their GM and big cabinet had come to a conclusion which didn't see their former head coach John Hines as part of their future puzzle. Hines replaced Peter Laviolette in 2020 and coached the Preds for three full seasons, and most likely will find another gig somewhere else in just a matter of moments, even if it would mean an assistant job behind an NHL team's bench. He's been around the block for some time now and has seen success in the NCAA level as well as on the international ice with the USA's junior teams, but without a doubt, this didn't come as a surprise given the fact that he was hired by David Poyle during his tenure and now that Trotz is taking his place. 
you wanted to get his right-hand man in place, and you also got to remember the overall step back from last year's playoff performance from the Preds. Andrew Brunette was the man that was selected to replace him, and in my opinion, this partnership has all the makings of a future Cinderella story given Trotz's coaching history and Brunette's fairly short track record from behind the bench. He has been an assistant coach since 2013 when he started his coaching journey in Minnesota. And after three years as the assistant in Florida, he replaced John Quenwell as their new head coach and led the Cats to a President's Trophy at the end of 2021-2022 season. But soon after a dramatic spanking from their state rival Tampa Bay, the team decided to part ways with him and eventually he found his new home in New Jersey, where he got his next opportunity as the assistant coach alongside Lindy Ruff. And well, we all know how that story ended. Absolutely tremendous season ended in the conference finals against the Canes, but at least in my opinion, he has showed his pedigree and I think that has caught Trotz's eye and wanted him as the cover guy for the next chapter of Music City Hockey. Which leads me to my next point, their offseason and their overall future outlook. Like I said in the previous episode, their offseason is going to be one that I'm going to follow closely since the team has most of its core intact still that went to the playoffs just a year ago and now has few really bright young bucks on the doorstep of the NHL hockey. So will they try to run with this core next year or should we expect even more changes in the offseason now that some of the dead weight was already thrown out at the NHL trade deadline? They don't have that many free agents to sign, and I'm more than sure that Trotz wants to get this team back in the playoffs as soon as possible. So, will he get the roster to a spot where that is possible, or are they going to try to overhaul the roster in a way that more fits into his future vision, and by maybe giving more ice time to some of their youngsters in order to potentially accelerate their development for a quick turnover before a few of their anchor contracts come to their ends. They still got Yusuf Saros in net and Roman Yossi on their blue line, so those are some real building blocks to build your future around, but the situation is really wide open because I could see them taking either path, to be honest, since they weren't that far from the playoffs this year, even after selling at the deadline, and we did acquire some additional cap space to operate with during this year's offseason, so I believe that Trotz is not just going to lay on his laurels and more so try to make few meaningful adjustments right as the dealing and wheeling starts later in June. But those are pretty much the highlights when it comes to their coaching change. Next we move to Washington who hired a replacement for Peter Laviolette who they let go just a few weeks ago. His successor is going to be a former Leafs assistant coach Spencer Carberry who will make his head coaching debut on the NHL level. Carberry returned to his previous organization after two years with the Leafs since back in 2018 he was hired as the head coach of their farm team Hershey Bears and only two years later was nominated as the coach of the year in the AHL. And to me this was a brave step from the Cavs front office since there were a boatload of more season names on the table for vacant coaching jobs but at least to me it's nice that we start to see more fresh faces behind the bench and especially for a team that has rotated many old faces behind their bench for years now. But it goes without saying that he has a pretty steep hill in front of him when considering the state that their organization currently is in. Just missed the playoffs by a pretty large margin. Core members have been battling with injuries for the past couple of seasons, and the entire roster is starting to become old by the league standards, so it really isn't an easy place he's currently thrown into. I talked about the possible trade chips that they could be offering for other teams this summer, which changes the outlook even more before heading to next year, given that the team could change even more drastically before the first puck drops, so he needs to spend his summer next to GM Brian McClellan to stay in touch with what they aim to achieve next year and with which players. According to most sources, he has the tools to be a long-time NHL coach and was respected within the Leafs organization, so I have to lean on those assessments given that I haven't really followed his career path that closely, but all in all, this was a bit surprising move given the team's veteran status and the inexperience of Carberry in the NHL level, but at the end of the day, this could be the first nudge towards a younger cap squad, so 
we'll see how the offseason unfolds for this team eventually. Next, we head to front office world, which without a doubt saw some changes last week as first, former Flames GM Brad Treliving was appointed as the new general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And only a day later, the Pittsburgh Penguins announced that the former Leafs GM Carl Dubes was going to be their next president of hockey operations. So, talk about NHL soap opera. And you know, it's funny how Dubes told during his post-playoff press conference that his future was either going to be with the Leafs or outside the NHL bubble completely in order to spend more time with his family and to recover from the Hell's Kitchen called Toronto Media. But that wasn't really the case, wasn't it? Yeah. No. And I mean, if you didn't see this coming, shame on you because the guy is way too valuable to be left hanging on the market and Even though I didn't point it out in the previous episode, I had no, zero thoughts about him leaving the NHL circle at this point because we've all seen what he's been able to do with the Leafs during his stint. And yeah, he shot a few planks as well. But at this point, you also got to ask yourself how many of those moves were actually orchestrated by Shanahan because we now know how much he handcuffed Dubas in Toronto. And one of the reasons why he had doubts about coming back to Toronto was the fact that Shanahan had so much leverage on everything around the organization itself. So, when this kind of an opportunity presents itself, I think you've got to be fooled to let it slip past by you. Because although the team is on the verge of a rebuild or retool, however you want to say it, it is undeniable. Let's get that back straight so... In my opinion, there could have been many worse candidates for the job than Dubas, and hopefully we now get to see him working some magic in Steel City, because the team really needs it if they want to find themselves from the postseason again next year. And just like I said previously, they got a big summer coming up as well, where they got few fairly big UFAs possibly hitting the free agency. And the overall goalie question is going to be one of the more intriguing ones in the entire league, so... I believe that Dubas isn't going to rest for too long and will start to heat up the phones as soon as he gets his hands on them. The one major difference though between the Pens and the Leafs organizations is the pedigree of their collective staff since, as we know, Leafs is undoubtedly the most stacked team when it comes to operative staff inside and outside of the Scotiabank arena. So, he has fewer tools on his disposal now and needs to utilize them even more proficiently, which might be a big change at first, but I think that Dubas is educated enough to make use of the situation and to work extremely closely with his staff in order to make calculated decisions. So I believe that this was a great move for their organization, but only time will tell how well this will pay off when you remember that the team is heading to an inevitable reconstruction in a year or two so. Only then we can start to measure the marks he's made with this new organization. And when it comes to Toronto and Brad Tree Living, I mean, it kind of fits the scheme since Tree Living is known for his ability to transfer teams into contenders soon after his arrival. So, since the Leafs are in do or die mode, He seems like a pretty good fit to that situation, at least on paper. And while he isn't necessarily seen as a top-end GM, nor the worst apple from the pile, I don't know what the Leafs fans can really expect out of him, other than maybe executing another massive blockbuster this summer. And of course, I'm just kidding with that, but if that ends up happening, Leafs fans expect to see your team is in the playoffs and the other party advancing to the cup finals like Florida has done this year. No, but seriously, the pressure is really on tree living. There's no way around it. And to me, the one really odd thing that stood out within the last couple of weeks related to Leafs was that Shanahan already told media that the core four of Nylander, Matthews, Marner, and Tavares is going to stay in Toronto for the foreseeable future. And didn't even give any thought on trading one of those pieces away to relieve some cap room. So to me, it's just really really odd or he's just trying to pull the old Mark Bergevin move and for those who don't know he basically said that P.K. Subban wasn't going to be traded and pretty much the next week he was shipped to Nashville so we'll see if he really meant what he said or 
if this is just a statement that will hold the reporters off of clickbait trade titles until the dust settles. But if you would ask me, I would say that that is not an option at this point, and I think that at least some of the Leafs fans can back me up here, because we've now seen that these guys can really do some damage during the regular season, but once the tough games really start, just look at the core force output in the CAT series. They just disappeared from the face of the earth and really don't have the it factor, aka the grit, the hunger and the nastiness that is needed during the crunch time of the NHL playoffs. Plain and simple. So how long are they really going to hang on a pipe dream before someone pulls the rug from underneath their feet and their final hand is just dealt to them, is my question. Five wins is what they got this year, and to remind you, you need 16 to hoist the cup, and since the success in the NHL isn't linear, unfortunately, that total could be two or three next year, not to mention zero in the worst case, so... Say what you want, but they were nowhere near cup contention, and I can say that with confidence when I compare their game to the other top teams that advanced to the conference finals. So how does Trilliving fit into this scenario exactly? Well, if you're looking to make some drastic moves in the offseason, he's certainly the guy for that job, given that he has proven track record and everything. And in my mind, he has earned a worse rep than he probably deserves thanks to Flames fans, so... Even though I think that it's a downgrade from Dubes, he was the best candidate for the job on the market, at least in my opinion. And if he's going to dance with Shanahan throughout the year, I think we can't expect anything drastic given his cuckolding reputation. So I think the Leafs ended up making most of their situation once again. But the next thing is to decide if Sheldon Keefe is going to continue behind their bench or if they end up surfing the coaching market for a replacement that could trump his achievements or whatever you Leafs fans call those regular season wins. But certainly 311 fits the bill they were looking for. Season GM with lots of miles behind him, respected around the league, and also fits the current Leafs timeline mentally, so checks most of the boxes that they set before the decision itself. But those are pretty much the major headlines from the past couple of weeks. Let me know what you think of these changes and if the Leafs made a mistake when deciding to relieve Dubas from his GM duties. Next though, we will move to the final playoff matchup between the Florida Panthers and the Vegas Golden Knights and the aim here is to look at their different paths that eventually led them to the Stanley Cup final. But just before that though, we got a word from our show sponsors, so don't go anywhere. We will dive straight into these two teams after this short break. Light the lamp during the hockey playoffs with DraftKings Sportsbook. New customers can make a $5 bet and score $200 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code THPN. That's code THPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Massachusetts, call 800-327-5050 or visit gamblinghelplinema.org. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Kansas, call 1-800-522-4700. On behalf of Boothill Casino and Resort, 21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Bonus bits expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash hockey terms. All right, thank you to DraftKings for sponsoring this show. Now, to our main attraction, the Stanley Cup Finals. 
Pacific's first seed Vegas Golden Knights going up against the team that has played the second fiddle in Florida for the past couple of years, the Florida Panthers. Let's just start breaking down this matchup. Vegas is up first and man has their journey to this point been a convincing one. Series after series they've pumped out complete performances and even few speed bumps haven't slowed them down whatsoever. Quite vice versa. The team has grown even stronger cohesively and every guy has clocked in each and every night with 100% effort. And yeah. They had some rough patches on the way, but overall they've deserved their spot at the top. And quite honestly, I was kind of blinded by their last year's result. And I probably waited in way too much, given that the team hasn't changed that much from their previous playoff run. And this year they didn't even have to deal with as many injuries as last year. So all in all, I have to confess that I've downplayed them ahead of the playoffs. But they've certainly proved me wrong, plain and simple. But quite simply, this project started already last year when they acquired Jack Eichel to their roster, but due to missing over 500 man games due to multiple key injuries, they ended up missing the playoffs, and in the aftermath, the current Dallas head coach Pete DeBoer was booted out, and former Bruins bench boss Bruce Cassidy was acquired to their helm. And mind if I ask you, why do you think he was a free agent last summer? Got any clue? Well, if you don't, let me make it clear to you. Bruins front office didn't think that he was a winning coach anymore. So yeah, pretty ironic, would you say? Bees got absolutely clowned in the first round, and look who's in the cup finals. Exactly, the guy who they thought didn't have it anymore. I think I bumped his stars back then when he was appointed as their new bench boss, but I'm not 100% sure on that, so I'm not going to bump my own tires more than that. But the fact of the matter just is that he's a brilliant hockey mind, and you can see that from his track record. Sometimes just a change of scenery can make wonders to not only players, but also coaches. Just check Pete DeBoer's first years with new organizations, and you can see a pretty good pattern of that. So, what I'm trying to say here is that he's got the team playing as a cohesive unit on both sides of the puck, and the depth of their roster is undoubtedly their biggest strength, and they have really showcased it against more top-heavy teams such as Winnipeg and Edmonton this year. And honestly, this team somewhat reminds me of last year's Colorado, and of course they don't have a similar trio to McCarr, McKinnon, and Rantanen, but Michael, Stone, and Petro don't fall far from that, so when you add the team depth of both teams, plus somewhat questionable goaltending aspect to the equation, you may grasp the idea behind my thinking. In their first round series, they completely manhandled the lackluster Jet squad and made Hellebuck look like Swiss cheese, and pretty much after the first game of the series, which was a total off game from the Knights, the series was over after just five games. They ate their lunch right in front of their eyes and walked to the second round to face the Oilers squad, who were oozing confidence after beating their last year's first-round matchup, the LA Kings. The baseline for their second-round series was that they had the advantage on 5-on-5 situations, but if they took any penalties, it would mean conceding one goal against pretty much each and every time. Because we've now come to terms with the idea that you just cannot stop the Oilers power play plain and simple. And that ended up being the truth, but thanks to their massive depth advantage, they were able to limit Oilers high danger chances and just basically took advantage of Edmonton's less than convincing defense and goaltending and outscored the one-line band in six games. Their depth was just on another level compared to Edmonton's, and since Stuart Skinner couldn't be the guy between their pipes, the Knights advanced to the conference finals without too much drama, and got to rest and recover a few extra days thanks to the other series which went to Game 7. Eventually, 
Dallas was the final team standing between them and the finals. And despite some drama, the Knights had found a winning formula and disarmed the Stars again in six games. They took a 3-0 series late straight out of gates and forced Dallas to fight to the skin of their teeth in order to extend the series beyond just four games. Jake Ottinger got his mojo back in game four, and the scale started to slowly tip more towards the Stars' punch. But as we know, not that many teams have clawed back from being down three wins to none, so... Basically, it was just a matter of time once the Knights gave the last blow to the Stars' punch, and that moment ended up being game six in Dallas as they completely manhandled them on their home ice and strutted to the Stanley Cup Finals for the second time in their short NHL history. On the roster front, Jack Eichel has really blossomed in the postseason and has completely silenced all doubters who labeled him as a liability because of his past. And currently, he's running with over point per game pace, while being the tempo pusher for the Knights when he has the puck on his tape. Additionally, he has become a real threat on the power play, which has opened up more space to the rest of their five, and in the aftermath, guys like Carlson, Stevenson, Stone, and Marcheso have been treated with prime scoring chances, and you can pretty much see the result from the scoreboard yourself. And if Eichel's rise from the ashes has been something impressive to witness, same can be said about Jonathan Marcheso, who seemed to be the odd freeloader on the roster in their first-round series, but once he found the back of the net for the first time, it's been nothing but celebrations after that first talk. The guy just straight up leaves for goal scoring and you have almost been able to feel how his blood starts pumping way differently after he snaps one in the back of the net. So now that they made it thus far, his line mates have to keep feeding him if they aim to hoist the cup at the end of this marathon. And another guy that doesn't get the big headlines is Chandler Stevenson, who quietly has now had back-to-back plus 60-point seasons and has added 14 dots to his score sheet from the 17 contests. He's been a straight-up revelation for the team since, yeah, a 1-2 combo of Carlson and Eichel would be pretty dope, but just add in there a 60-point guy who can also play on the wing alongside the right-handed speedster and you have yourself a pretty versatile water buck whose feet will keep the opposing defenders on their heels in every shift. And speaking of Carlson, how many teams do you think have the privilege of having three 50-point centers on their team? Yeah, not that many, but Vegas has that. And what is something that usually stands out from the cup-winning teams alongside strong decor and a goalie who can stop pucks? when the clock hits clutch time. Yes, center depth. So when you have that, you are in a pretty good shape come the postseason, but that certainly isn't the only trade that they have going for them. So what else could they still have in store? Well, let's not leave the forward core since I still would like to shine some light on Riley Smith, Ivan Barbashev and their captain Mark Stone. Stone has been his usual self with this elite net from presence and suffocating two-way game, and when they've needed some energy to their bench, Stone more often than not has been the guy to bring that with his clutch trade. Like, you can just see how he enjoys the playoff hockey with the way he celebrates each goal, so when you have a captain that is that invested, you can do anything but resonate and focus on delivering yourself each time you step onto the ice. And while Smith has only tucked home two Genos this spring, he's been all over the ice causing turnovers and bringing the puck up the ice, so the package they got from exactly Florida during the expansion draft has really paid off, and both guys, Marcheso and Smith, have been key pieces in their success this year as well. There's no doubt about it. And then when it comes to their deadline moves, I mean... Like I mentioned in the pre-deadline episode, Ivan Barbashev was going to be the hot commodity because of his greedy two-way playstyle, and Vegas ended up being the beneficiary that got his rights way before the shot clock started to run out, and at this point, it would be an understatement to say that he's been impactful for them since 15 points in 17 games is probably not what anyone expected to see when he was snatched from St. Louis for a forward prospect, Zach Dean. 
He's been exactly what the doctor ordered, and this year he really has proved to any doubters that he's made for playoff hockey. So, rightfully, he can be seen as one of the biggest additions of this year's NHL trade deadline. And finally, when it comes to their forward core, I need to tip my cap to their bottom six of Nikola Wa, Michael Amadio, Fred Howden, William Carrier and Keegan Colesar, because they brought that much-needed sandpaper to their lineup, especially Carrier, Howden and Colesar, who've been absolute hyenas on the forecheck, which has led to lots of turnovers within the first three series. And that has to continue in their final matchup against the Cats, because they know that they will bring that same energy to the building each night, so... I've been really impressed by their play, and they've quickly made their bottom six one of the best in the entire league. And as we move to their blue line, we can quickly notice that they got responsible two-way options all over their three pairings. Highlighted by the season veteran and cup winner Alex Pietrangelo and shifty offensive dynamo Shea Theodore. Both guys have been the breakout leaders for the Knights and have racked up big minutes on their blue line while providing some additional offensive depth from their back end. Shutdown guys, Zach Whitecloud, Alec Martinez, Nick Haig and Brady McNabb have completed their duties as well with dignity. So as you can pretty clearly notice, their depth isn't just a fairy tale but a concrete strength that has carried them so far in this year's playoffs. You could throw any of those names to any team's top four without hesitation. And when even your forwards are willing to get involved defensively on block shots, you really have a team that is tough to beat on any given night when they put on their overalls and start executing their game plan. And that has even enabled their goaltenders to shine. And journeymen like Brossois and Hill have looked like seasoned starters and by no means am I saying that their success is only the result of their great cohesive defensive play, but it certainly has played a big part in it, there's no doubt about that. But if we take the team aspect away from the equation, you just have to tip your cap to these guys, because by all means, goaltending was their biggest question mark when heading to the postseason, and if their success was going to be measured by something, it was going to be the quality of their net money, plain and simple. They started their season already without their first stringer, Robin Lehner, who was lined out very early on. Then rookie Logan Thompson and career journeyman Aiden Hill stepped up and put up decent numbers between their pipes, but once Thompson got injured way before the postseason, they had to do something and in came the veteran netminder Jonathan Quick from LA, who unfortunately couldn't take the throne in his new home during the remaining games of the regular season. Well, then the postseason was about to start, and their head office had a difficult task in their hands in deciding on who was going to be their starter when the first puck dropped in the T-Mobile arena. Was it going to be the career backup Lauren Brossois, who had spent the year between the NHL and the AHL? Veteran Quick, whose numbers were just straight up hard to look at? Or... Was it going to be Aiden Hill, who had showed some promise in San Jose and Arizona, but had never been a standalone starter on the top level? Well, they decided to go with Brossois, who looked shaky in their first game against the Jets, but came through in their following matchup and eventually led the Knights to a 4-1 series win over the Jets squad. Then he got dramatically injured in the second round and had to be pulled from their crease, which meant that the pressure was shifted to Aiden Hill's shoulders. And pretty much from that point on, it has been a straight-up story, where he has made some huge, huge saves to keep the Knights in games and, overall, has looked extremely convincing in their blue paint. We haven't seen that many easy goals scored on him and he has looked extremely poised between their pipes, so... At the end of the day, their biggest weakness has carried them thus far, but there's still one more series to go before we can close out this chapter for now, so this entire equation has been a story in itself, so at least in my mind, it would be awesome to see those guys hoisting the cup at the end of it, given all the negativity and doubt surrounding this exact aspect of their game. Their skaters have done a tremendous job in eliminating most of the high-danger chances which has helped their task tremendously, but they still got one more offensive dynamo to go through and they certainly 
are willing to go to the tough areas of the ice, net front included. So, therefore, I have some doubts about this carrying them to the end of it all. But like I said, this team is exactly where it belongs. They are so stacked that not that many teams can even compete with them on paper, not to mention on the ice. So it will be interesting to see if they will have any off games in their final series since we haven't seen too many of those. And if that happens to be the case, they can count on the fact that the Cats will take every inch you give them. So they need to stay on their heels in every second of the 60 minutes if they want to celebrate on the strip in just two weeks. Also, it's going to be interesting to see how well they will match up against a team that is known to go to hell and back for the win, which will match their speed and physicality, plus challenge you with their ferocious forecheck, not to mention the goalie battle that we are about to witness yet again in the biggest stage of them all. Florida, on the other hand, has been the phenom of this year's postseason and their entire playoff journey started with a massive upset as they came back from being down three games to one against Boston and eventually to the best regular season team in the NHL history to the offseason in a deciding Game 7 of their first round series. Since the fourth game of that series, they've only lost two games in a 13-game span and in Every series they've been the underdog, so they arrived to the cup finals with a massive slong hanging on their ankles and rock with such momentum that even I could be carried on their lineup given how hot the team has been lately. And when I say that their road to the cup finals has been rocky, I really do mean it since less than a month before the end of the regular season, this team wasn't even considered as a playoff team thanks to their four-game losing streak and the big advantage that the teams above them had in the standings in relation to them. But somehow, when the calendar flipped to April, they just couldn't lose and Alex Lyon turned into a prime John Van Beesbrook between their pipes and this way, the Cats were only points away from clinching a playoff spot. But in order for them to make it to the last dance, Pittsburgh would really need to drop the ball in the final meters of the race because Panthers ended up losing their final two games on home ice. But that ended up being just enough because the Steel State representatives completed a perfect joke job by losing to lottery teams Columbus and Chicago at the finish line and this way were defeated by the Cats by just one point. So literally, it is a miracle that they made the playoffs in the first place. And if you can recall, I hammered this team a couple of times during this year's regular season because they were straight up ass at times. And in February, I even dedicated an entire episode title for them. So this has been a real Cinderella story to this point already. And if they end up hoisting the cup at the end of it, we can't argue about this not being the biggest underdog story of the modern NHL. The real turning point for them was really back in February when first Keith Kachuk straight up called them out for how softly they played. And only a couple of nights after their respected head coach Paul Maurice had a total meltdown on their bench which is somewhat out of character for him. But after those events, the guys in that locker room really started to dial in and made this possible with the way they picked themselves up. And this playoff run is already in the history books thanks to Boston. So only thing missing is the final four wins. And some could even say that it's inevitable at this point given the momentum they are currently carrying to the final series. And oh yeah, without Bill Cito's last year's offseason moves, this run wouldn't happen. Because if we track back to last summer, you might remember that this team changed their head coach and was also involved in probably the biggest blockbuster of the modern NHL when they shipped Jonathan Huberdeau and Mackenzie Weaker to Calgary in exchange to their current playoff hero, Matthew Kitchuk. After getting pumped in the second round by the Bolts, Zito decided that it was time to find a replacement for Andrew Brunette and former Jets head coach Paul Murray stepped into the ring to lead this team over the second round hump that has been their enemy in the playoffs. And I can't but think that Maurice has his hands all over their success since what I've heard is that he's probably the best motivator in the entire league when it comes to bench bosses. So 
when you look at how they found their way to the playoffs and how the story has evolved from that point on, you can't but think that this has to originate from somewhere inside their locker room and my best bet is that it is a combination of Maurice and their locker room leaders, the Stahl brothers, Kachuk, Ekblad and Sasha. But now, let's start to go over their results so that we can get a clear picture of what has happened since the start of the postseason. So like I mentioned in their first round series against the Bees, they were down three games to one after four games and it looked like the Bruins were going to continue where they left off during the regular season. And despite close games, the Panthers were not able to take full advantage of their scoring chances. And before game five, all odds were stacked against them thanks to Boston's historical regular season and their 3-1 series lead. Bob had made his entrance to their goal crease and slowly we started to notice that this guy wasn't the same one we saw during the regular season. So the game five ended up being the turning point when all the chips were laid on the line as they grabbed home ever precious overtime win. And who else but Matthew Kachuk was the one responsible for extending the series to game six. Then in a scoring battle in Game 6, their depth surged from the depths and decided the game for them, and the series was going to decide in Game 7. And once again, on and away ice, the clutch factor was found from their lineup, and they had upset the best regular season team in the NHL history. Next on the crosshairs was the Toronto Maple Leafs, who beat their odds by advancing from the first round, but pretty soon after the first game, they as well noticed that this cat squad hadn't come there to play around and after just five games they had bounced another favorite from the cup race. Just like that. They toyed with the leads back in and completely neutralized their top line players so at the end of the day there ended up being quite a massive difference between these two teams. Then it was time for the conference finals and the final team standing between them and the cup finals was Rod Brindamore's banged up Kane squad who had just beat the Islanders and the Devils in their previous conference battles. This series was expected to be a close one given the elite defensive game of the Kane squad, and we can't really argue against that because the first game prolonged all the way to the fourth overtime period before Kajak put his name on the board once again and sprinted off the PNC Arena's ice. And honestly, I watched this game and fell asleep between the second and the third overtime and was surprised when the game was still on when I woke up again in the third OT. And just for shits and giggles, these two teams decided to go for another overtime in game two. And once again, the sheriff himself, Matthew Kachuk, repeated his game one antics as he scored the game winner in the first overtime. And just like that, the Cats had grabbed two away wins to start off the series. Game 3 featured only one goal, and on May 25th, the Cats completed the sweep by beating the Canes 4-3 on home ice, and the ending to this game pretty much summed up the entire series as once more, Ketchuk had to be the guy to decide the game, and with only seconds remaining, he found the puck from his office in front of the crease, smoothly outweighted Freddie Anderson, and potted his ninth goal off the playoffs, so... All I can say is I feel bad for the Kings because first of all, they weren't even supposed to be this far in the playoffs given the massive injuries they suffered before and even during the playoffs. And what makes it even more painful is the fact that they stretched thin during this run against the Cats but didn't get anything out of it. So it's a massive slap in their faces in a sense, but sometimes adversity is all that the team really needs before hoisting the cup, just look at the Panthers' journey to the Stanley Cup Finals, and even their own few previous playoff runs. So as you can see, they've really dug deep during this year's postseason, so you can sense where the momentum really comes from, and honestly, it would be kind of stupid not to think that this team wouldn't be the favorite when heading to the final seven-game stretch of the NHL playoffs. Ketchuk has been a real miracle worker for them if you haven't caught up to that already and it's been mesmerizing to watch how he thrives in those clutch moments and gives his all in every battle everywhere around the ice. Other players on their lineup can't but breathe in that energy so his presence has been more valuable than gold for the entire team and 
without his clutch goals, they wouldn't even be here. And if you disagree, you are a moron. So there's the Consmite candidate number one. Shasha Barkov has quietly increased his output the further they've gone. And he has taken a more defensive role on the roster in these playoffs, which is why he hasn't been highlighting the headlines. But when you know that you have other guys in the lineup who can bang home that deciding goal, you just make sure that you plug up the defensive zone. And that has showed in his goals against that's where he has been on the ice for like three or four or five on five goals against. So if you've thought that he's been a bum during this run, you are sadly mistaken because he's been the Selk level center that should earn more recognition, as I've said multiple times in the lifetime of this podcast. And then we have the late bloomer, Carter Verhege, who ended up sinking his former team Leafs in the second round. And if some of you haven't really paid attention to this guy previously, I'm pretty sure that you have now noticed how lethal of a goal scorer he really is. And probably have to ask yourself, why hasn't he been more on the headlines before? Well, until very recently, since the arrival of Kachuk, the Cats haven't really been the poster child of the NHL and doesn't get similar coverage to many other teams thanks to their non-hockey market status. But I think that that is quickly starting to change given that the NBA Finals are also hosted in Florida. So hopefully at least these guys would earn more front pitch time than what they've received so far. But he as well has come up clutch for the team in few occasions, and his speed has created lots of offensive chances for the Cats. And more than anything, he has brought versatility to their front three, which has been their biggest weapon so far in these playoffs. And behind these three, we got the stapler himself, Sam Bennett, who has yet again proved his playoff value with his drive so. After a one-year absence, we get to enjoy his best version, which has been throwing his body around and caused havocs in the crease area of the opposing teams. He's been a real menace this year, and the second line featuring him, Chucky and Cousins, has really brought the energy to their lineup and has caused the most turnovers in the entire playoffs. Sam Reinhardt is also another name from their forward core who has stood out by putting up seven Genos on the board in 16 postseason games. And pretty much he has been the guy that has benefited from the relentless work of his linemates Luostarinen and Lundell. So we can't just keep over those guys because they've been integral part of their success as well. And even Anthony Duclair, who returned to their lineup at the back half of the season, has had his fingerprints all over their success. So... We can comfortably say that their offensive depth as well has been top-notch, just like their rivals from the Western Conference. On the blue line, Brandon Montour has been a minute-munching monster for them and is the undisputed number one guy on their decor, which has alleviated some pressure off of Aaron Ekblad, who has improved his game during this run and has focused more on being the top-line shutdown guy for the Panthers. Gustav Forsling has elevated his game to another level as well and has been one of the most consistent breakout passers on their team while yet again belonging to the category of players who don't get the recognition they would actually deserve. Mark Stoll has been the unsung hero of their defensive core and even though he doesn't have any points to his name from 16 games, he's been the steady Eddie of their blue line who makes sure that the puck goes out of the zone and that the opposing forwards don't have any room to maneuver around their blue paint. But the one name that has been the definition of pain in the ass is the Czech lumberjack Radko Gudas who's been a total menace in this year's playoffs. He grilled Brett Marchand in their first round series, then stapled David Camp to the boards after the whistle and screamed to Joseph Wall's face after the deciding goal against the Leafs. And now has told the media that he will do everything in his power to make the Knights hate his guts so we can expect some fireworks in the remaining games of the Stanley Cup battle. And finally, we arrived to the crease where we got the Russian Superman, Sergei Bobrovsky, who's been straight up outerworldly in his 14 starts in the postseason. 2.21 goals against average and .935 save percentage is the second best total behind Aiden Hill, but when you add to the equation that he has faced over 150 more shots against, we can confidently say that he's been the best netminder of this year's playoffs. 
Am I right? He has straight up turned back the clock and quite honestly at times he reminds me of Brian Jonathan Quick where he enters this kind of a zone where it seems like no one can beat him one-on-one. Like it doesn't even matter if he faces a clap bomb from the point, cross crease chance up close or a breakaway. It's like picking berries for him at this point so... Even though he ended up surrendering a couple of times in their first game, I believe that he's going to bounce back in game two and make it hard for Vegas to clinch their second win of this series. And honestly, it's remarkable how he's been able to completely elevate his game in the postseason since you and me both know that this isn't the Bob that played for them in the regular season because that guy dragged more pucks out of his own net than what he saved. So I would be interested to hear how many liters of vodka has led to this kind of four. Well, nevertheless, at least in my books, he's been the most impactful individual of this year's postseason, but they still have one more series to go, so we'll see who finally ends up getting the Gunsmite trophy. But if I had to choose one right now, it would be Bob, no questions asked, and Chucky would be the obvious number two option, which should be as clear as day. So with all that said, I think you would like to hear my take on this series and who I think will hoist the cup in the aftermath. And my simple answer is going to be the Florida Panthers. And the simple reason for my pick is the fact that my former teammate has the opportunity to claim the most sought-after trophy in the entire sport. So, therefore, I hope and pray that the Panthers will take this final series and we get to see the cup itself in my hometown later this summer. So this time, my pick is solely based on emotion and Like I said, since my bracket is already totally in shambles, I'm just going to enjoy this final stretch of playoff hockey without too many distractions. So one could say that I've already put on the summer gear when it comes to NHL season as a whole. Hopefully, finals end up delivering as entertaining hockey as to what we've seen so far, and hopefully you also are wise enough to enjoy these final games before we enter the never-ending and excruciating off-season period. But that will be all for this week. I hope you enjoyed. Like I mentioned, the NHL draft is slowly closing down on us, so I will dedicate one of the future episodes for the top talents of the 23 NHL draft class. We'll see if that day ends up being already next Monday. Thank you for stopping by. Remember to check out the media handles and the sponsor discount from the description. And if you've enjoyed... Feel the five stars on Spotify to show your appreciation for the show. I really appreciate the gesture. Have an awesome week, you beauty. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Until next time. All right.